Julia, you are Scottish and went ish. to Scotland. By descent. Ish, ish. <laughs> Big emphasis on the ish. <laughs> went to Scotland recently and you booked us this amazing guest who has cited this really mythical, well, I shouldn't even say mythical, mysterious creature only known to Scotland. I did, Anya. And if our listeners can't guess who it is, we are talking about the Loch Ness Monster today. Uh, I was recently in Scotland over the summer, drove by the Loch Ness Lake, I have been interested in Nessie since I was a kid. I think that Nessie is one of the coolest mysterious creatures from history. And I was able to get connected with one of the foremost Loch Ness Monster experts, uh, Gary Campbell, who's based near Loch Ness in Scotland. And Gary is going to tell us a little bit more about Nessie. I'm curious to see if he can turn me into a believer. I'm a believer. I can believe her. Anyway, okay. We're, do it. <laughs> that was great. I, will, I think we're going to cut right there. Oh, Gary, this is this is amazing. I mean, we're so happy that you responded to my email. We're just, we're thrilled to have you on the show. Like the Loch Ness Monster has been a personal interest of mine for a very long time. And so mm-hmm. this is really a trip to be able to talk to somebody who has as much knowledge of Nessie as you do. Just, it's very cool. We're, we're very happy to have you here. Very and good. So, I'm delighted to be with you. To kick it off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, where are you dialing in from and, you know, what do you do currently? Just a little bit of insight into who you are. So I'm, I live in Inverness in Scotland, just north, just to the north of, of, of Loch Ness, um, about five miles away from the loch itself. Uh, I, by day, I work for the University of the Highlands and Islands, hence you'll see the name at the bottom of this is Gary I. Campbell, UHI, University of the Highlands and Islands. Um, and, but my hobby is uh, I'm keeper of the register of sightings at Loch Ness. So, so I, I keep a register along with my wife, Cathy, we, we, we keep a register of sightings of something unexplained in Loch Ness. We never say it's a Loch Ness monster because we don't know what the Loch Ness monster is. I've been doing that since 1996 um, and, and still trying to find out what Nessie is. And when we it started in 1996, when I saw something in Loch Ness, I saw a black hump or a dark hump coming out of the water twice in pretty quick succession. And it wasn't particularly big. It was about 10 or 12 feet long. It looked like a mini whale, and it was about a quarter of the way across the log. So it was about a quarter of a mile away. And I didn't know what it was. And it came out, and I thought of seeing things, and it came out again, and I thought, well, there's definitely something there. And I grew up on the west coast of Scotland on lochs and water and fishing and boats and rivers, and it was nothing like anything I'd seen before. So I decided at that point to go and report the sighting. You know, it was almost like doing my civic duty and say, right, well, I've seen something in Loch Ness. Better add it to the list, folks, you know. And I discovered that nobody was keeping a list of sightings of Nessie. And, you know, you, if you've been to Loch Ness, you'll, you'll see there's plenty of visitor centres and tourist attractions and such like. They were quite happy to tell people about the Nessie story, but nobody was keeping a list. And they hadn't done so since 1972, since a previous almost governed, quasi-government-sponsored body had been doing work. So we just set it up. We started off as a Loch Ness Monster fan club um, because Nessie didn't have a fan club either. And uh, 
but then over time, and it was really an information exchange for people who were interested in it, but then over time, as the, as the internet grew, then all the information you'll ever need about the Loch Ness Monster is out there, apart from the most recent sightings. So it boiled down to the Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register, which is what we've been continuing doing to this day. And even today, when we're speaking, uh, tonight I've got to look at a video that someone sent me on WhatsApp saying, I think I've seen something in the Loch Ness. And it carries on on a regular basis. So that's me. It's, it's a hobby. We do it. I don't own a hotel beside Loch Ness. I don't have a visitor centre. I work for the local university. Um, I don't even have a chartered accountant by profession and I do economic development at the university. I'm not even an academic. So I'm not as if I'm Professor Nessie. I just do this for fun. Can you uh, tell us the history of Loch Ness, the fascination and the story about how she became such a, a fascinating uh, character for people and and thing that people are obviously pretty obsessed with? So the Loch Ness Monster story has got two very, very distinct parts to it. <clears throat> the first is that the first recorded sighting of something in Loch Ness that you would put akin to the Loch Ness Monster was in 565 AD. So it's almost 1,500 years ago. And that was by when St. Columba, who was an Irish saint, came to Scotland to convert all of us heathen Picts to, to Christianity. Now, Picts were the... the, the, the the tribe of people who lived in Scotland, in the north of Scotland at that time. Um, and I'm a, a picked, I've got a Pictish gene as well. So my ancestors have been around since basically the last ice age, knocking around the north of Scotland, causing trouble. And the, in fact, the Picts were the only tribe in Europe that the Romans couldn't conquer. They just gave up and they built a wall between Glasgow and Edinburgh and went, just leave them up there. <laughs> you know, just troublemakers. So the, the, St. Columba came to convert us to Christianity and he came north to Inverness to see a man called King Brood, who, and I live at the moment in one hill, one, the hill on one side of Inverness and right across out the window I'm looking just now, I can see King Brood's hill where his fort was. So Columba came up and there was this story of this creature in Loch Ness and the River Ness that you'd come out and attack people. And he heard about it and he said he went down and this creature came out to attack somebody and he took his cross, the power of the cross in Christianity, and he told the creature to get back into the water and behave itself, and the creature went back in. And why this was important in terms of the why this was important in terms of the Christianity and the Picts was the Picts worshipped the water spirit, or the water kelpie was the name, water horse. There was something in the water that was they, that they as part of their religion, and they they worshipped that. And what he was saying was that the power of the cross in Christianity was more powerful than their water spirit because it had banished it back into the water. And this was written about in his biography, which was written a couple hundred years later, actually, by a guy called St. Dominic. But so therefore, the water kelpie, the water horse story was there written down in, in the you know, 700s. And that water kelpie, water horse story pervades Scottish locks and also around the world. I mean, it's the same. Late Okanagan in British Columbia, where Ogopogo lives, the, 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 the indigenous people there talked about a water spirit that was in the lake. Um, it's the same at Lake Champlain, you know, in, in, in Vermont, in the north of New York State, where you are. The, the champ lives in there. Again, this water creature that lives there. So the water kelpie was well known to be in Loch Ness and other locks. And this carried on. And there was, towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, there was the odd mentioned in books, there was about the water kelpie, there was the odd talk in, um, in newspaper articles saying, oh, the water kelpie was seen yesterday. It was nothing unusual. 
It was just accepted that in Locks and Lakes, there's this thing. Now, skeptics will say it's an old wives' tale to keep kids away from the water so that they don't go there at night and to keep drunk men away from the water because the water kelpie can manifest itself as a beautiful woman and lure the man <laughs> into the into the water and all these things. So it's myths and folklore and such. So that's fine. But then in 1933, the local newspaper here, the Inverness Courier, wrote a new, an article in May the 2nd, 1933, and it was entitled A Strange Spectacle on Loch Ness. Page five of the paper, not big headlines, it was just a little thing, and it was another story about the water kelpie in Loch Ness. But what they said was they put the monster into that article and they said it must be a fearsome monster if it's as big as it appears to be. So all of a sudden you had the three words in the one article, Loch Ness and Monster. And for whatever reason, nobody knows, the, the first the Scottish press, then the UK press, then the international press picked up in this story and the story of the Loch Ness Monster was born. And at that time, nobody knew why this was. I mean, why? I mean, because it wasn't as if these articles were known. I mean, maybe two or three a year in the local papers about the Kelpie. But four weeks before that article was, was, was actually printed, the King Kong film had come out to global world release. So the world had seen a large creature hanging off the Empire State Building, and it was like this massive creature. It was a great big thing there. And maybe, actually, there was a real one in a Scottish law. And bearing in mind, even then, there was a railway line between Inverness and, and London. You could get to Inverness from London within a day. No problem in the 1930s. So here was an accessible Scottish loch that might have this large creature. And it went on from there. And there's, there's a lot of debate. A lot of people say that it was an invention by the tourist industry. It clearly wasn't because if it had been, it would have been much, there would be much better PR around it. You know, it would have been a front page story. And my goodness, it's a monster. It wasn't. It was a very, very unassuming article. And it took quite a while for the traction for the press to pick up on it. But to be fair, the tourist industry picked up on it instantly. When people started coming to Loch Ness, going, where's this monster? They were like, oh, don't you worry, we'll happily take you out in a boat to look for it. No problem at all. That'll be a pound, sir. Thank you very much. Um, and it went on from there. It's been going like that ever since. So there's two bits to the Loch Ness Monster story. There's the water kelpie, which is the same and still goes on across the world. And then there's the Loch Ness Monster, which was born on the 2nd of May, 1933. And I mean, you, it sounds like you and your wife are carrying on their tradition then of a, the couple that initially saw them. So this seems kind of like a great thing for couples in terms of bringing them closer together. What better way to get closer to your partner than sighting a monster together? I don't know. Well, my wife wasn't there that day and she's, I think she's still slightly deep, slightly skeptical about my, <laughs> my sighting. <laughs> And, and, you know, I mean, and even this evening, speaking to you, to you ladies, I said, she goes, who are you speaking to now? I said, I said, it's a, a podcast. I said, and from the United States, she went, okay. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, here, here, here we go again with that <laughs> general skepticism that one's spouse might have for, for one's hobbies. <laughs> but, but no, it is, it's good fun. I mean, we, we do it, we do it for fun. There's no, we don't, we certainly don't make any money off it. But at the end of the day, I suppose what I'm looking for, I'm still looking for the answer to what I saw 26 years ago. And, and I want to find out what I saw, and I still don't have the answer. And, and every year, I mean, every time that somebody sends a photograph or a video, you just sit there and cross your fingers and go, is this it? You know? And then, and so far it's not been. 
There have been two or three fantastic pictures, really good ones. I was going but to ask about is, those. Because when I think yeah. of Loch Ness Monster sightings, there's one photo. I, I wish I could remember what the date is, but I feel like there's one picture that's particularly famous. It's got that sort of black hump, as you described. It's very grainy. And I know there have been a few photos, some of which have, I guess, been considered to be hoaxes at this point, but others that are more valid. Could you tell us a little bit about that history of the documentation so, of the Loch Ness Monster? So what happened... Um, in 1933, obviously, as well as the tourist industry, the, the world's press descended in Loch Ness and said, right, where's this monster? And went, it's not that obvious, you can't really see it. So they sent in uh, various folk to, to come and search for it. So first of all, there was a prize from a circus owner who said he would give £10,000, a lot of money in the 1930s. I mean, even the, back then, that would have been about $30,000, you know, in, in, those type, in those days. So you can imagine what that would be worth now. Um, in terms of as a prize for capturing the capturing this, he turned up with a big cage in Inverness as a publicity stunt. And they also, the Daily Mail newspaper sent in a guy called Marmaduke Wetherill, who was a big game hunter from Africa. And they thought, well, if he's, if anyone can catch this thing, it's this guy, Duke Wetherill. And he was a, he was a bit larger than life character and he turned up, but what he, what happened was he got caught faking evidence. And so there's not much shoreline in Loch Ness, but there's one bit with sand on it. And what he did was that these big footprints appeared one day. Oh, this is it, the Loch Ness Monster's been out for a wander along the beach. Um, but what, what he'd done was he used a hippopotamus foot that had been turned into an ash tree and he stamped it into the sand. <laughs> now, as somebody pointed out, the Loch Ness Monster had two left feet. You know, it, it, just, it was just ridiculous. So, he, so his, his reputation was ruined. And, and it carried on like that. But, but what people wanted was a picture photograph of the Loch Ness Monster. So the very first photograph was taken in late 1933 by a man called Hugh Gray, a local guy. And you'll find this in the internet. It's well well published, the, the first picture of Nessie. And it's not the one you're talking about. The one you're talking about because it's called the Surgeon's Photograph. Um, and that was it. Oh, all of a sudden we had a picture of the Loch Ness Monster. There's various, there's two ways of looking at it because it doesn't, it's like lots of Nessie pictures. There's no perspective. There's no foreground and background. So you can't tell how big the thing is, but it looks like either a serpent going through the water that's 20 feet long, which the man said it was, or alternatively, you can look at it and see it as a Labrador with a stick in its mouth. So, the other, so then fast forward to 1934, and this surgeon's photograph, which is the one you're referring to with the head and the neck, which Forbes magazine said was one of the 100 most iconic images of the 20th century in the world, this picture of Nessie. And it was taken by a... a a London doctor called R.K. Wilson, and he had it. He was coming north. He was going to go uh, north. To, he was an ornithologist. He was going to go bird spotting, and he passed by Loch Ness. He saw this thing. He took his camera out and he took two photographs, and he had them developed at a chemist in Inverness. And they took them and they sold them to the Daily Mail, and this became the picture of the Loch Ness monster. And everything since then has been it looked like a head and a neck sticking out of the water. Again, you can't even prove it's Loch Ness because there's no foreground, background or anything. And then in the 1990s, two different people came back out with competing stories saying that they had they had hoaxed it. And one guy, a man called Christian Spurling, said that they'd done it because he was Marmaduke Wetherill's cousin, nephew or something. And they did it to get back at the Daily Mail because Marmaduke Wetherill had been made fun of by the Daily Mail for putting his hoaxes in. And so they sold this picture to the Mail to prove that it wasn't just them that was hoaxing stuff. So, but that picture just 
stuck in everybody's mind as a picture of the Loch Ness Monster. And there have been various hoaxes over the years, but not as many as you would think. You don't need to hoax stuff at Loch Ness. There's plenty real stuff goes on. It's not necessary to hoax it. But I'd say the best pictures are the ones that are much more recent. There's one from 1997 by a man called Richard White. He took a series of 10 photographs. One of them's on our website, which shows something coming out of the water and going back in again. Nobody knows what it is. And again, more recently in, in 20, 2018, a young girl called Charlotte Robinson from Newcastle in, in England, uh, sorry, Leeds in England, she, she took a picture of something very similar um, in Loch Ness to Richard White's. And again, it's a thing sticking out of the water. See, that, that, but the problem with it is nobody knows what it is. It just adds another layer of this is something unexplained at Loch Ness. So. And do people who follow this think Loch Ness is Nessie is a man, a woman, non-gendered? What, what are the... What <laughs> what do they think? Well, clearly, in today's world, Nessie's gender fluid, but um, because nobody <laughs> knows what she is. But um, the initially, initially, funnily enough, back in the nineteen thirties, because I've got an album of uh, newspaper cuttings from the nineteen thirties. It's just gold dust. The, the stuff people were writing, and the tourist industry decided that the Loch Ness monster wasn't a particularly good promotional name. <laughs> So they wanted to give Nessie a name. And before the name Nessie came out, which actually first appeared in 1937 in a booklet by local monks, they, they, they decided to call it Bobby. And Bobby will do. That's it. So you could have the Loch Ness Bobby. There you go. We won't say any more about that. It died a very quick death. And then Nessie came out. I said, just as a diminutive of Loch Ness, rest were given names, but it's just Nessie. So people think, yes, Nessie's a woman, but they presume that she must have a family. Good name. It's a good name. <laughs> I wanted to go back to something interesting that you mentioned, which is you said a lot of strange things. It's Loch Ness. You know, it's not unexpected to see something strange. What is it about Loch Ness that makes it an environment for this type of unusual activity, but also this rich history of folklore? Like, does it really go back to St. Columba? Or are there any other theories about what makes Loch Ness uniquely special for these types of events and you know, this uh, public obsession you know, with it as well? There's two parts to this, Julia. One, one is it's not uniquely special because there are 23 other Scottish lochs with sightings of creatures. It's just the Loch Ness monster is the one that everybody hears. Uh, there is one, if you take the geography, I mean, Loch Ness is part of the Great Glen that splits Scotland in two. It's a geological fault line. And if you go further down the, the, the Great Glen, there's Loch Lochy, which is about half the size of Loch Ness. And there's a creature in there called Lizzie. And then almost around the corner from that on the west coast, there's Morrer, which is the deepest inland waterway in, in the UK. It's over a thousand feet deep. But in terms of Loch Ness itself, most a lot of people have got, they see Loch Ness in terms of mysticism. Um, it's part of a do with it. The, the same rocks on either side of the, of the loch are 30 miles apart from where the tectonic plates have moved uh, over the years. Um, it's long, it's deep. I mean, the North Sea is that, you know, between ourselves and continental Europe is about 400 feet deep. It's deepest in Loch Ness is almost, is, is almost, is 889 feet deep, more than double the depth of the North Sea. So it's a deep, long, dark loch. And the thing is, it's full of peat. 
So if you go 20 feet down in Loch Ness, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's dark. It's black. So as it is, and, and it doesn't freeze because of the size of the body of water. So no matter how cold it gets here in the winter, Loch Ness does not freeze ever. You might get some ice around the, around the edges, but it will never freeze over. And this temperature remains consistent throughout the year. It's, it's, it varies in a very, very small amount, again, because of the size of the body of the water. And all of that, and it's got very steep sides, hills, mountains, either side of it. So it just, when you get, when you come to Loch Ness and you look at it, 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 I mean, it's spectacular scenery wise, but it also closes in on it with the hillsides if you're going down and you're looking at this dark, dark water and the hillsides closing in and you think, I wonder what's in there. Now, Gary, I have to ask this. If, if you had the opportunity to touch Nessie, jump in the deep, dark waters with Nessie and go for a swim with her, would you be brave enough to do that? Oh, 100%. And would your wife let you? <laughs> oh, she, would, she, would pro- she would probably encourage me. Um, <laughs> she, would but, she push you? <laughs> yes, that's it. She, on, the fo- on, the, on the phone to Nessie right now, going, can you take him tonight? But, um, <laughs> but I'll tell you a story of a man who did touch Nessie. So, so back, back, in, back, back, back in, the, in the early 1970s, when this group, at the beginning, I was telling you when the, the sightings were being recorded. So there was this group called the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, which wasn't fully government sponsored, but a, a, a member of parliament here, which is like your guys, senators, you know, um, had, had sponsored this and said, we need to find out what's in Loch Ness. Through the 1960s and the early 70s, they, they had this thing called the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau. So very, very formal. And they, they, they were searching for Nessie and they tried various different things. And there was a man called Bob Badger who lives in Scotland who joined this as a vol- volunteer. And in the early 70s, he was putting a boat mooring down in one of the bays. So it was a famous castle at Loch Ness called Acker Castle. And in the bay beside that, which is quite shallow, it's, I mean, it's not completely shallow, but, it, but bits of it are quite shallow. So he was putting a boat moving down and he wasn't using scuba deer, he was just using a snorkel because he could go down 30 feet with this, 20 feet with a snorkel and put the, the moving down, which was a large concrete block and you had to tie the, the chain and such like to it. When he was down there, he said something went right past in front of him that he touched with a scaly body that he said was he said it was six feet in in, um, in circumference, which isn't but it's not particularly big six feet in circumference, but it's big enough, right? And it went past him, and he brushed his hand against it, and he said that I said what was it? What was your reaction? And he said, have you ever seen these cartoons in television where somebody gets up out of the water and runs along the top of the water? He said like that because they're so scared. He said that was me, and he said he would never ever go back into Loch Ness after that day ever. So he was the man that touched Ness. Wow. I never heard that story. That's really cool. It's, it, it, I mean, it is out there. It's been, it's been told about two or three times, but it's that he, what he didn't want to do was be, be publicized as the man who touched Nessie. He, right. he just went, he just went, well, this is something that happened. He said, I don't know what it was, but he said it was something big and it was under the water. And he said it was going past me and it had a scaly feel. And I was oh very, gosh. very scared. I <laughs> so, would have been out of that water to... so fast. I would like if I if I like took a bath or a shower after that and I felt like anything come against my skin, I'd feel like I'd have a panic attack each time. Yep. Right. You can't forget <laughs> something like that. 
But Gary, I, I really like how you described Loch Ness. I mean, you did such an incredible job of painting a picture for our, our listeners. Just, you know, as you said, those sloping hills, the deep water, how dark it is. It's it's very spooky, but it, not necessarily... I, when I drove by it, it didn't seem menacing. Like, it, it was intimidating, but there was something about it that you just sort of fixated on. And to me, it, I just you know, felt that way about Scotland, I would say more broadly during my trip there, that there's just something sort of magical, you know, mystical about that country. And it's just such a wonderful place for this type of, you know, storytelling, but also a place for unusual things to exist just because of how old it is. And as you said, how old some of those bodies of water are, and you add in the peat and everything, like who knows what's in there. Exactly. It's, a, it's funny. I mean, it, it does tie into the whole Scottish folklore <clears throat> sort of genre, for want of a better word. You know, and whether it is clan battles, whether it's the, you know, witches, you know, whether it's, I mean, the, the, the grey man of Ben McDewey is another one. It's, it's a kind of man that appears out of the mist like the Yeti, another story in the Scottish Highlands. The water kelpie, because in that, in that instance, it's less the Loch Ness monster and more the water kelpie. It's part of that rich folklore of Scotland. But I think what, what these people are recognising or were recognising when they're talking about, and this is all oral history, oral tradition, you know, very, it was only in the, I would say, about the 19th century, or the 17th, sorry, maybe the late 17th through the 19th century that people started writing this stuff down. But these stories all inter, interlink or interweave into something where people are trying to explain the unknown. They just don't know. What, what's causing it. So it, if it's if it's an apparition in the mist, it's a man, he's coming to get you. We don't go there, it's dangerous. If it's something people are seeing in the water, they don't know what it is, so it must be a water horse, it must be a water kelpie. Maybe it's dangerous. Let's tell the kids it's dangerous. This kind of thing. And it's all this written, but oral, oh, sorry, oral history. But it's the same around the world. You get indigenous populations everywhere and they talk about the same things. It's just that in Scotland, the you know the the, the Loch Ness monster story that, that started in 1933, eclipsed took that and eclipsed it, um, and and has made it very very famous. And since then, of course, the name Loch Ness, I mean, and, and lots of people abbreviate it to the Loch Ness um, because they think that's a name as opposed to a lake. Uh, and Loch Ness or Loch Ness monster is now just used as a, I suppose, as a synonym for for something that is like talked about a lot but never seen. You know, I mean, because because we we keep a track on on news headlines around the world as part of what we do. And there's, I'd say there's less than a week's worth of days in the world for the for the Loch Ness monster isn't mentioned in a, on an annual basis. I mean, it's mentioned every single day, but most of it is in the context of like, oh yeah, you know, Big Jim. We hear about his greatest scoring goals at football, but he's like the Loch Ness monster. You know, we hear about them scoring goals, but we never actually see them. That type of thing is used all the time. And that keeps the, that keeps the name Loch Ness Monster in people's minds as being something that's unknown. And then what happens, it's like, you, Julia, you know, when people come to Scotland, they come and they go, right, where are we going to go? We'll go to Edinburgh, we'll see some castles, we'll go and do some whiskey. And if you like golf, it's the home of golf here, you know, so go into the golf. But you know what? That Loch Ness Monster, I've heard about that. No, apparently nobody ever sees it. I'm going to go to Loch Ness and I'm going to be the one that sees it. And that's what happens. And it just perpetuates like that. So, um, and then the very lucky few every year see something. You know? And and it's the odds of seeing something at Loch Ness are, are minuscule. I mean, there's, 
there's between, I mean, using the actual visitor centres and places, that Uckert Castle, which is right beside the loch, which is probably one of the most visited places beside Loch Ness, before the global COVID pandemic had 600,000 visitors a year. And now there's more people than that are going by Loch Ness because not everybody goes there. So people estimate there's up to a million to a million and a half people will visit and go past Loch Ness every year. And then you maybe get 10 sightings. So your chances of seeing things are pretty minimal. And if you, and, and I know that people who see stuff genuinely feel blessed that something special has happened to them. And if you speak to them immediately after they've seen something, it's almost like a religious experience. Um, they're, they're like, I can't believe I've just seen this. And it's that story, that power of that feeling, that story, when people tell that story on, it encourages more people to go and look. Do you think Nessie likes golf? <laughs> well, the tourism side of Nessie likes anything. Um, you know, and they said that there was a, a wonder, there was a wonderful man in terms of you know that type of things. You know, to tie these things together. I mean, the obvious one is if you want to see the Loch Ness monster, well, we'll just go to the pub and and drum the rocket beside Loch Ness and have half a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> and you'll see it. You'll you, you'll see anything you want. That's not a problem. Just go down to the loch at night. My goodness. And of course, they say that the the big thing is Elvis coming in in a UFO and landing in top of Ness. And if you drink. <laughs> If you drink enough, you'll see it. Uh, and so there's there's the whole fun side of it. Um, there's three bits to it. There's the, there is the whole, there's the fun side of it that, you know, does Nessie like golf? Does Nessie eat shortbread? And Nessie has been, has been used to promote golf, whiskey and shortbread and many other things over the years <laughs> because, because nobody owns the Loch Ness Monster. It's the, the, the name Loch Ness Monster, the name Nessie, the whole thing. No, nobody owns that brand. That brand is is free and available for anyone to own. The local paper never did anything about it in 1937 when they called it a monster, so it became free to use. So, every, so it's, it's used a lot in terms of promotion for Scotland and for various things. But then there's the then there's the fun side. It's like, you know, Bart Simpson came to Loch Ness and drained it. Probably the best <laughs> thing to do. It's fine, Nessie. You know, that, that's it. And, and Scooby-Doo. Oh, Scooby-Doo's been at Loch Ness a couple of times, sorting out Shaggy and Core, sorting things out with a bit of fun with that. Um, so, and then there's a the commercial aspect of it. I mean, it's worth, in dollar terms, the, the Loch Ness Monster phenomenon is probably worth about, I don't know, about 50, 50, 55 million dollars a year to the local economy. Oh my economy goodness. Every year. Wow. Um, yeah, but I just, in, in a draw, we did it. I mean, again, I, I said to you earlier on, I'm a, I mean, I'm an accountant by profession. So we did the calculation, um, in 2019, um, to see how much it was worth. And I got a lot of data from, private data from a lot of the operators around Loch Ness. They told me, you know, the, 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 the attendance figures and such like. So it's worth at least that to, to the local economy. So it's a big driver in terms of, you know, the tourist industry here. Um, and then there's the fun side of it. See, so, you know, people talking about Nessie and golf and whiskey and drinking and everything. It's, it just gets lumped into, a lot lumped into the rest. So, but then, and then there's the really, really serious side of it, which is cryptozoology, which is the study of hidden animals. Um, and there's, there's maybe then down about maybe 24 worldwide who are really seriously into that and will study it as that. But most people come here going, maybe I'll see it um, and maybe I'll be the one that gets that million-dollar picture. Nessie needs an agent. She doesn't need an agent. She's got to get a cut of this money. That's it. Well, but that's, that, that's, that, that's the thing, you know. People say to me, oh, you know, Loch Ness Monster from that. That's nice. You know, the, the way of making money about the Loch Ness Monster is to, is to basically, you know, charge people for the story and everything when they're here. 
So you make money. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you the reason why you don't, that people elsewhere will want to hear stories about Loch Ness Monster because it's something that might interest them in it and, and unknown and such like, but they won't buy stuff. You know, they won't, they won't, they won't spend money about Loch Ness Monster unless they come to Loch Ness because then they'll stay for a night and they'll maybe buy a t-shirt or buy a, buy a fridge magnet for, for, for mom back home, you know, this kind of stuff. But they won't, that, that's it. And, and I, I compare it to, I mean, we talked about earlier on King Kong and close to your heart, Julia, is the, you know, the Empire State Building. So the Empire State Building, pretty much everyone on the planet knows what it looks like. They all know what it is, right? Sitting in New York. And if you're in New York or you're in Manhattan, I should say, if you're in Manhattan for the first time, by and large, you will go to the Empire State Building and you'll go up in the lift and you'll spend 30 or $40 or whatever they fleece you for um, to go up there and get your picture taken and go, here's me in the Empire State Building. The rest of the time, you couldn't care less about it. Right? And you're certainly not going to go and buy Empire State memorabilia if you live in Buenos Aires. You know, it's just like, you know what it is. True. It's there, and, and, and the Loch Ness is the same. So people have heard about it, they know about it, and if they come to Scotland, they'll go, do you know what, I'll go there and I'll have a look. But the rest of the time, they're like, that's nice, maybe there's something there, maybe there's not, who cares, you know? And something that is now coming to mind for me based on what you said about, you know, having these other, you know, sort of creatures throughout history that have captured you know, the imagination is that Nessie seems like one of the few where there's been a sighting and a specific place. You know, if I think about the history of unicorns and oral history of dragons, I don't think there's anything, as far as I know today, where somebody could say, yes, there's been this history of sightings of this particular creature. And yes, those sightings have been sort of restricted to this one particularly interesting you know, geography. Yeah, you're right. And, and I mean, of course, unicorn is the national animal of Scotland. It appears in the flag and everything. But there's no there's no one place you go, do you know what? If you hang around there long enough, you might see a unicorn. That doesn't happen. And you're, and you're correct. So the, the ones that where, where, where there are sightings on a regular basis are probably the yetis of the world, Bigfoots and Nessies of the world, of which there are a number. I mean, as I said, there's Scottish lochs and then there's Lake Champlain, there's Lake Okanagan, Lake Seljord in Sweden, there's two or three Russian lakes, um, China as well. I mean, there's a history around the world, it's just people have heard of Loch Ness. But these tend to, these tend to be towards something that's probably physical uh, and, and real and it's just a species we haven't heard of. Whereas your dragons and unicorns and stuff are, are more probably based in stories and folklore and people talking about you know, this is it. I saw a fire-breathing dragon. Yeah, but nobody's ever actually seen one. And what was it? We don't know. But and 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 the, the more fanciful creatures that you're talking about, unicorns, dragons, actually tend to be more spectacular in terms of what people actually talk about. Um, whereas the you know the bigfoot is like, well, it's a big hairy man. You know, it's not. I mean, it's a bit scary, but we we, we don't know what it is. But it's just a big bloke. It's hairy. We don't know, and we know what it is. And and the Loch Ness monster, when you actually boil it down to if you take away the tourist images of it, it's just this black thing that comes out of Loch Ness and it's not particularly big. You know, 20, 30 feet long would, would be would be a, a, a good estimate. That's not a dinosaur. You know, it's not it's not like that. So there's probably it's probably these ones you as you're talking about are probably unicorns and such like are probably genuine folklore and myth. Whereas you get the other end of the spectrum, which is the Loch Ness monsters type creatures of the world, which are probably founded in truth 
and that people that people can see they regularly see something in a specific in a specific location, which is kind of handy for the Scottish tourist industry. Oh, certainly, it definitely is. Along with shortbread and and whiskies and Anya's uh, former yeah. pro sport golf. Um, when you when we talked about that third category of Nessie, sort of those the, the seriousness behind it, I remember reading. I think it was an NPR interview. And in that interview, you mentioned that there was some non-invasive water DNA testing that was going to be rolled out by the University of the Highlands that they were developing. And there was potential use for that to be used um, with Nessie. Could you tell us about that a little bit, if it's still relevant? Yes, it is. And so what happened was my colleagues at University of the Highlands and Islands, a chap called Professor Eric Verspur, who is just Canadian, actually, just retired. He was working on what's called environmental DNA, eDNA. Um, and he worked with a guy called Professor Neil Gemmell, who came from the University of Otago in New Zealand. And environmental DNA is in water, is if you can imagine if anything moves through water, whether it's fish, humans, or Loch Ness monsters, some bits of you will be left behind. You know, you'll shed skin cells and whatever, microscopic bits. Um, and that contains your DNA. And that DNA will live for up to seven days before it dies off and just gets and just disintegrates into the water. So if you can take very fine filters into the water and take them through the water, you will pick up this environmental DNA. And it could be something that was there days beforehand. And then if you analyze the DNA and match it to existing DNA profiles, you can work out what is in a body of water. So they did it in 2018 um, and 2019. They did work. Uh, and they did eDNA, and it was one of the, it was really, it's actually quite annoying because Neil Gemmell came from New Zealand, and it, he actually says it in one of the television interviews that he was basically looking for his 15 minutes of fame, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, which was quite sad because he, he, he realized that if you start to do stuff at Loch Ness, you end up in a media circus. And he ended up selling the, the story to Discovery Channel and he was doing this and that and all this. And he, and he just started to love his own PR, for want of a better word. And he said that what he'd found, he, he had a press conference at Loch Ness and they'd found this all this data. And everybody thought he'd got some groundbreaking data that was proving what was in Loch Ness. And he came out and he said, oh, there's a lot of eels in Loch Ness. And it's like, that's good. Eh? We all knew that. Loch Ness is full of eels. Thanks, Neil. Great. And I've never seen a story disappear so quickly. I mean, I, I, I was at another university in Scotland at you know, a meeting that morning, so I couldn't go to the press conference. And I was getting phone calls every five minutes from journalists. Do you know what's going on? Have you heard about this? What's he got? What's the story? Has he got the answer? And I'm going, I don't know. The man, I mean, the man never spoke to me the entire time he was here. I said, I just don't know. But and then he said, it would be And then by lunchtime, that was the end of it. But oh press packed up everywhere went away and people ignored it. But the really sad thing was that they found 25% of the DNA that they took out of Loch Ness they couldn't identify. And it's like, well, why didn't you go and look at that and say, here is an identified animal or creature-based or animate DNA. What is it? <laughs> you know, rather they talked about bloody eels, you know. So anyway, so so that that was the DNA. So I think there's the... the if he, you know, what I would be hoping people would do is then go and do eDNA profiling of other lakes, lochs in Scotland, lakes around the world, and see if they find the same unknown DNA 
that they found in Loch Ness. And then you go, wait a minute, here's something. It's DNA of something that lives in lakes around the world, but we don't know what it is. Well, that would be great. I hope somebody no does that. But, that would be so yeah. fun and interesting, obviously. Yeah, and, but nobody, nobody suggested it. Yeah, and he killed it dead by saying there was eels. I mean, the Loch Ness is full of eels. I mean, there's tons of eels. And one of the practical solution, practical explanations about the Loch Ness monster is that it's a lab deal of some species. And it may well be that. And it does fit with a lot of the sightings. But to sit there and come out and say, oh, it's Loch Ness, it's got eels. You're like, oh, well, that'll be that. You know, it's like, it's always people yawning and going, oh, well, okay, we'll go and get a cup of tea now. That's nice. Great scientific why, research. Why do you think Nessie is so mysterious and she is basically just goes into hiding? What What is it about not wanting to maybe be known, do you think, that <laughs> makes her not just say, you know what, I'm real? Or do you think she likes keeping people in suspense? Yep, there's two. I mean, there's two bits to that, Anya. And that one is the back to what we're saying about the Loch Ness monster becoming the comparison for, you know, often talked about and never seen. So in popular, popular culture, popular icon, that's what it is. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, we all heard about it, but we never see it. In practical terms, you know, if we go on the basis that there is something living in Loch Ness, then Loch Ness is very deep. Um, whatever, and, all, and the sonar contacts and underwater contacts are all deep down in Loch Ness. So that they, or they tend to be deepish down, you know, and the fish in Loch Ness, eels live in the bottom. Um, and the fish in Loch Ness live right at the top or right at the bottom. So you get the, the migratory fish, which are salmon and trout and such like, that come in the river Ness in from the North Sea and go off, go up into the rivers in Loch Ness and go back out. And they, they, they swim near the top. And there's a species of fish called Arctic char that lives 800 feet down at the bottom of Loch Ness. In the middle, there's nothing. But most of the sonar contacts that you pick up of unknown things in Loch Ness are somewhere in that middle ground. The, if you look at it from a practical perspective, you say, well, there are so few sightings that are, of, of something coming out of the water, then it must be something that lives deep down. Why would it come to the top? And there's a, there's an underwater wave phenomenon called SHASE, which, which um, it's S-C-H-E-I-S-S or something. And, and, and what it is, is a, if you can imagine if you get into a bathtub quickly, the water goes slops up and down, back and forward, right? And and what happens in long lakes like Loch Ness is they become like wind tunnels. When the wind blows along the length of them, they become like wind tunnels. And that creates an underwater standing wave. You can't see it. It's below the surface. And that wave pulls things up from the bottom of the lake. Now, people have said that that explains the Loch Ness Monster because it's pulling up debris, maybe old logs and stuff in the bottom and it appears at the top and people see things. But what if something lives down at the bottom and this, this wave phenomenon pulls it right up to the top, it sticks its head out and goes, Oof, wait a minute, I shouldn't be here. I'm in the wrong place and goes straight back down again. So there's a practical explanation why Nessie doesn't want to be seen is that Nessie actually lives at the bottom of the, of the loch. <laughs> and 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 is not a surface creature, um, and and therefore is the sightings are almost well are by accident. She's coming to the top of the water by accident because she shouldn't be there. She should actually be six hundred feet down in the water, and something is taking her to the top. 
I also hadn't heard that. That's really interesting. And I can see where those water currents, I mean, they probably pull up all sorts of strange yes. things, not yes. just Nessie. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that's it. So, I mean, if Nessie is a, and even if Nessie's a, a large species of eel living at the bottom of the loch, then that would happen to you. It would come up to the top and go, why am I here? And go back down. And likewise, with the sonar evidence, you know, sonar works obviously like you know, it pings a, a sound pulse into the water. And anything that's that, that's in Loch Ness, I mean, it's not going to go by sight because it can't, you know, as I said, it, it's, it's, it's dashed from 20 feet down. So anything that's navigating around at the bottom of the loch must be doing it by something other than sight and it's most likely sound because it's water. And if a sonar thing pings it, it'll disappear, it'll go because it's heard this and go, gone. So if that's why you get a sonar contact, if you go back two minutes later, it's gone because it'll be away because it's getting pinged by sonar. Amazing. And as far as I, the awareness that Nessie brings to conservation of Scotland's lakes, can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, that's what I've been a bit lately. Of, um, I mean, two or three times in the, in the history of Loch Ness, people have said, oh, Nessie must be dead because of environmental and climatic change. Um, about 10 years ago, a guy called Bob Rines, who was originally from Boston, Massachusetts, um, he said, oh, Nessie must be dead because of acid rain. You know, and, and it was just rubbish. He was making it up. I mean, the, the composition of the water hadn't, the, the, the acidity of the water hadn't changed much at all. And then recently, within the last few weeks, there's been talk about climate change has meant that, that, uh, you know, the, the heating of the, of the planet means the water's warmer and creatures like Nessie, um, might not survive. And I mean, there's a lot of headlines about it. And, but it was, it was publicity. Again, to me, it's publicity seeking by scientists who are using a very specific thing and, and then attaching the Loch Ness monster name to it to get publicity. Loch Ness, like I said earlier on, Loch Ness is, the, the, the temperature in Loch Ness is pretty consistent and it doesn't change and it hasn't changed a lot. And if you go back after this, people were saying about climate change, I, we went back through climate records and temperature records for the last thousand years. And actually for about 20 years back in the 1280s, there was it was much, much warmer in Scotland than it is now. So, I mean, you guys will know about this. There's been a, a heat wave in Europe. There's been a heat wave in North America. You know, the, the northern hemisphere of the planet has been very warm this year with fires and droughts and all the rest of it. But it was way worse in the late 1200s, significantly worse. Nessie was there in 565 and she's here today. So, I mean, that it's, it's, she's surviving these things. And it'll simply be because she's living deep down in a Scottish loch with actually the climate down there doesn't change at all. So that's a secret to staying young and living forever then, it sounds like. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Go I, live I, in I, the dark, cold waters and lock this. Uh, that's right. I keep off the whiskey. I. <laughs> <laughs> right, definitely. This makes me I wonder. I can save on Botox. Face cream. Maybe, Anya, that's your calling. You could go start yeah. the Nessie skincare line. <laughs> I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send you some water over on you. You can go and pedal it around North America and sit there and go, here's some water, here's some water from Loch Ness. Do you know what? It's kept something alive for 1,500 years. This might be the secret. <laughs> That's amazing. It, Gary, a big thing I was wondering, you know, yeah, leading up to this conversation and talking to you, you know, Adi and I have debates with people about all sorts of different things. And we've often found that, you know, it's really, it is challenging to convince somebody of something if they don't already believe it. And I'm curious, you know, when you have naysayers or non-believers say, no, there's nothing there. It's all in people's imagination. Nothing exists. 
is it ever possible to convince one of those naysayers you know, that there's there's something there, you know, that Nessie is real, or is it one of those, you know, we kind of just stay to our separate sides conversations? I'll tell you that the answer is yes, it is possible. And normally it's when people see something. I mean, I, I know and it's the Loch Ness monster at all until I saw something. I mean, I don't know. It was there. Maybe it was there. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. And it was nice for the tourist industry. Thanks very much. Great. And then I saw something. Went oh shit! There's something there. You know that's it. Anyway, but the 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 best the best example of that was back in 1999. We held a cryptozoology symposium. All excited about it. And we got we got these guys from across the world. I mean, like the top the top cryptozoologist in the world is a guy called Lauren Coleman, and he's based in in Maine. And you know, just not far from you guys. And he came over, and he he's got a cryptozoology museum there and such like. And there was a professor from Virginia Tech, came Professor Henry Bowe, and he written a book about Loch Ness and and uh, and done some really serious research. But these guys are, are looking for answers, so they came, and there was and there was a number of other folks. There was a man who did a lot of research into the Picts I was talking about earlier on. They didn't have a written language, but they, they left carved stones in Scotland. And a lot of these stones have symbols on them that look like the Loch Ness Monster. So we had a range of folk. And one of, but one of the folk that we had speaking was a man called Ian Cameron, who at the time was a retired detective chief inspector from the police force in, in the north of Scotland. And he has, to this day, one of the longest Nessie sightings in record. And him and his mate saw something back in the mid-60s. And it lasted for about, I don't know, 15 minutes or something. And it was corroborated by people on the other side of the lock who saw the same thing moving around in the lock and such like. And his, and he told his whole story that day, blow by blow. I've got, I mean, we videotaped him back in the day, which we did get a tape, we videoed him. And he, he, he's a fantastic storyteller. I mean, he, he, generally anyway, but he told it in such detail. I mean, he brought you back to being there with him in the show that night and how it came about and at the end of the, the, him t- telling that story the place was in silence and now there's a magazine in this country called 14 Times which was named after Charles Fort who, who, who looked at the strange and the unusual you'll, you'll know this and the 14 Times is the bible for strange unusual paranormal strange creatures blah blah blah, blah um, and has been for a good number of decades and the 14 Times editor came to our conference to, to hear this and he came to me afterwards and he said do you know he said I came up here, thought these these are just Highlanders that are just chancers, you know. That have made up this story about this big monster in a lake. They're making millions of pounds off it, fleecing tourists. And one hand you'd applaud them, but it's just rubbish, right? He said. Then I heard that ex-policeman tell a story. He says, and now I'm beginning to wonder. And that's what happens. So when people hear really authentic stories like. They go, okay. And I, and we would have, we had a pick, we had a sighting reported earlier on this year. Very, very unusual nowadays. Most stuff comes in by email. It's like, here's a picture, here's a video, here's a report. First time in years, a man phoned me and he said, I've got your phone number from someone else around the law. I need to tell you what happened to me yesterday. And he was almost breathless. And he moved here 30 years ago from Northern Ireland and he walked around the law. He, he was a forester. And he said, but he was also interested in birds and wildlife. And he said he'd taken his, his um, binoculars with him one day because he'd heard some species of bird that appeared at Loch Ness. And he saw something in the loch and he described it in absolute detail. And he said, 
he said, I never thought I'd ever see something in Loch Ness. He said, I, I, I didn't even think it was something there. He said, you know, it's like, yeah, that's nice. But he said he was privileged to have witnessed what he saw in Loch Ness that day. And that was the one thing he used. He said, I feel privileged. He said that I witnessed what I saw yesterday. So you get people like that are critical and then they see something and it is genuinely like a religious conversion. Now, what happens is it wears off over time. So you speak to him in two years' time, they're like, oh yeah, I saw something in Loch Ness. But catch them the day they see something and folk are like almost breathless. And the other ones, if you, if you hear their stories, then even if the most dire skeptic, you'll go, there must be something there. And it's incredible, your role in all of this, that you have the privilege of having these people reach out to you. You seem to be first of mind for most people mm -hmm. who have an interest in sighting or really any sort of information as it relates to Loch Ness and Nessie. I mean, when I was researching, okay, who's the foremost expert in Nessie and Loch Ness, your name came up several times and it just seems like such a unique legacy for you to have as well. I do have um, one final question, you know, that Adi and I, we love to ask a lot of our guests, especially guests who have a you know, a, a unique interest or a unique relationship with a particular animal. And that question is, mm -hmm. you know, let's say you met Nessie tomorrow. You're by the water and Nessie comes up and, you know, you can ask her any one question and she'll understand it and she'll be able to respond to you. What would you want to ask her? God, there's a question, eh? <laughs> I would just say, do you know the fuss you've caused? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's amazing. I, I, have, I have to say, I, I have to say though, I, 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 um, I'll do this, I'll, I'll, I'll pause and you can cut this bit out if you want. Right? Behind me up there, there's a, this book, right? That's, that's another way I wrote. Okay, and under oh, wow. a pen name called David Levant, right? And it's called the it's called the Fairyland Chronicles, Volume One, Dust Wars, and it's a it's, it's a it's a fairy story for adults, as opposed to an adult fairy story, which is a totally different thing. <laughs> but um, a fairy story for adults, um, and it and it's based around it's based around a, a whole fairy population. It's a guy called David Levante. It's written in the first person, and David Levante is the king of the fairies. Except he doesn't know he's the king of the fairies until he becomes it. And he's a, he's an ordinary lawyer's clerk. And all of a sudden he's catapulted into fairyland to save, to solve a big problem. And he finds it very, very difficult to cope with, right? That's the story. I couldn't resist putting in the Loch Ness monster. So actually there is a scene in that book where he meets Nessie and sits down and talks to her and has exactly that chat. Oh my that gosh. You're talking about that, exactly okay. that chat. So you have thought of this. Yeah, uh -huh. so, so if you want to know what I would ask the Loch Ness Monster and what the chat would be like, it's in the book. You can get it on Amazon as a PDF. Or you can buy it on Amazon as a, as a paperback. It's there. So so yes, I have thought about it. But one of the things is, would you... I, I, in the discussion in that, it's like... And also, he goes to see Tahoe Tessie, by the way, in Lake, Lake Tahoe, California. But um, the, the, the discussion is like... And, and, and actually, I've got Nessie being really, really, really annoyed that she's called a monster because she's not. She's the water kelpian and I wish people would understand this. So there, it sounds like the, uh, the creature in Beowulf who we've all described as some 
horrible monster. And they always end up being women, Anya. I don't know if you ever noticed that as well. <laughs> well, I mean, think, I mean, hurricanes are always named after women. Think about that. You know, any uh, natural disaster, I feel like it's a woman behind it. So there's, there's, your, there's your answer. <laughs> Uh, Gary, this has been well, so fantastic. Like, just a really interesting, insightful conversation. And again, just I get such like a thrill that I got to talk to somebody who's been studying this for as long as you have. Absolute pleasure. And and thank you for taking the time to chat with us. And I wish you the best of luck in all your future Nessie sightings. Oh, thank you very much. And um, you're right, I'm in a privileged position. Uh, there is, uh, somebody said to me, they said, you're the keeper of the sightings at Loch Ness. How do you, it's a wonderful title. How did you get that? I said, a journalist called me one day, but I quite happily took it and said, I love that. And of course, somebody said that but there can only be one keeper of sightings at any given time. And I'm very privileged to be the keeper of sightings at Loch Ness at this moment in time. So it's, it's, it's a pleasure. And, 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 and in many ways, it's a privilege you know, to be able to record what people are seeing in Loch Ness. And hopefully in the future, you know, but I'm long gone. That will be it will be of interest to somebody. That's all. Awesome. It will be. I don't think Nessie and Nessie's story is going away anytime soon. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. We look forward to sharing your episode. No bother. No anytime. Um, and if I can help you anytime in the future, just let me know. Yep. We'll do, Gary. Absolutely. Right. Lovely meeting you, ladies. See you later. You Bye. too. Have a good Thanks. night. Bye. 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 Wow. I mean, I'm so wow. sad that I left Scotland. Why I was there for two weeks. Maybe I should have stayed. I should have stayed, Anya, and we could have started Loch Ness Productions. I feel like you have, yeah, you really um, would thrive in an environment like that. I think so, too. Shortbread, whiskey, magical creatures. Oh my God, sign me up. Castles. Love castles. All about a castle. Dogs and bars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everyone, this is the official announcement. Furfluencers is now moving to Inverness, Scotland. <laughs> I'll record So what did you think? Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I would love, first of all, to be that passionate about something other than my dog. <laughs> um, but I, what was interesting to me was when he was telling the story about how, you know, people's, well, then people that were fully skeptical or didn't believe at all, how they can hear one account and hear a certain story of someone seeing it and how it can at least basically plant the seed in their mind that maybe it is that Nessie is real, that Loch Ness monster is real and that it just takes someone's account in a very particular way to just spark the imagination too, that it could be real. Which, I mean, if we think about, as I alluded to the number of things that you and I have debated with people over time, the idea that somebody's personal story can have that impact and that it can take somebody who is you know, a complete non-believer in a certain issue or a certain topic and they can develop either an appreciation for it, empathy for it, whatever it is. 
I, I thought that was especially interesting that he pointed that out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also found it really fascinating that she's been around as long as she has been. That this has been, you know, that, you know, whether you believe in it or not, I think that there's something really powerful about having these stories that people can connect with, that draw people to a community, to an area that gets them excited, that maybe connects them to that particular place too. As you're mentioning, like, you know, Loch Ness is very particular to this area and hasn't been sighted anywhere else. And that to me is really special for a community to to have that. Whether or not you believe it in or not, like it is their thing. It's what makes Inverness special. Right. It's part of the history of that place. And yeah, just as we talked about the history of oral tradition in Scotland and of these mythical creatures, you know, the Kelpie is so strong. It's, it's really, it's also unique to that country. And so, um, you know, I, I think that it makes people love Nessie even more, just these layers of affiliation that you know, she can have. It's, it's very cool. I need to well, go see her. I know. And I, I was looking up costumes uh, of what a Loch Ness monster costume would look like for Halloween, because now I kind of want to be the Loch Ness monster. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe there'll be a New York Post headline, Loch Ness monster spotted in East River. It could oh be God. you, Anya. This could be your moment to shine. I feel like I feel like the waters there are probably much cleaner. Um, and if the Loch Ness where to be in the Hudson River in in New York, um, she wouldn't have lasted as long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm inclined to believe you. <laughs> wouldn't have lasted as long. <laughs> on that note, everyone, thank you again for tuning in. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, at the Perfluencers. Support us on Patreon. Like and subscribe to us on Spotify and iTunes. We will see you next time.